Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Sally and Richard Challen. But first, your true crime headlines. In California, a 74-year-old former police officer admitted to one of the most prolific crime sprees in the state's history. Joseph James D'Angelo wore a plastic face shield and an orange prison jumpsuit during the court proceeding, which was held in a ballroom at Sacramento State University to accommodate social distancing measures for the more than 150 observers, including victims, victims' families, and media. D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and 13 counts of kidnapping, and also admitted to committing nearly 50 rapes for which the statute of limitations had already expired. His crimes, which took place in the 1970s and 1980s, began as burglaries and escalated to rapes and eventually murders before abruptly stopping in 1986. D'Angelo was able to evade capture until 2018 when an emerging forensic technique known as genetic genealogy conclusively tied him to the DNA samples collected from the crime scenes. In exchange for his guilty plea, D'Angelo will be spared the death penalty and will instead be sentenced to 11 counts of life without the possibility of parole to be served consecutively as well as 15 concurrent life sentences. D'Angelo's sentencing will take place in August, at which time his victims will be able to give impact statements to the court. The parents of Lauren McCluskey have filed suit in state court against the University of Utah, alleging that the university failed to take action when their daughter reached out to them for help. McCluskey, then a 21-year-old senior at the university, told campus police that she was being stalked and blackmailed by a man she had briefly dated. The man, Melvin Rowland, was a convicted sex offender on parole who had lied to Lauren and given her a fake name when they met at a bar in September of 2018. A month later, she discovered his true identity, and she broke off the relationship. After their breakup, Rowland threatened to release compromising photos of McCluskey if she did not pay him $1,000. She reported the blackmail to campus police on October 13th. Less than two weeks later, Melvin Rowland kidnapped and murdered Lauren and then took his own life. When McCluskey reported the threat to campus police officer Miguel Darris, she turned over the photos in question. The suit alleges that Officer Darris saved the images on his personal cell phone and shared them with officers who were not involved in Lauren's case. Darris is now employed by the police department in Logan, Utah. That department has opened its own internal affairs investigation into the incident. The McCluskey family is also suing the university in federal court, where negotiations have reached an impasse. Both lawsuits seek $56 million in damages to benefit the Lauren McCluskey Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving campus safety. An Ohio man was arrested after climbing the exterior of an enclosure at the Cleveland Zoo. 24-year-old Jacob Scott Lane climbed up the side of a building in the Asian Highlands habitat, which is home to the zoo's snow leopards. The exhibit is completely covered in steel mesh, and while he was not able to get inside the habitat, Lane did make contact with one of the snow leopards and pet the animal through the mesh. 
After his arrest, Lane told police that he was not afraid to climb the structure because of his previous parkour training. He apologized for his actions but said, quote, It was an awesome experience and he does not regret doing it. He also told officers he was not concerned about safety because he shared a bond with a leopard, according to an incident report. Lane has been charged with misdemeanor criminal trespassing, which carries a maximum sentence of 30 days in jail and a $250 fine. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, the story of a decades-long marriage that ended in murder. But first, a quick break. Are you experiencing stress, anxiety, Do you have chronic pain or trouble sleeping? You're not alone. If you're searching for something that might help, I want to tell you about Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep that helps you reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness naturally. And it's easy to take. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. I take feels for my chronic back pain, and these days it's helping me sleep at night as well. Finding your right dose is important, and everyone's dose is different, so leave room to experiment. Start small and work your way up. Don't worry, there's no high, no hangover, and no addiction. Feels works naturally. To help you feel better. But if you're new to CBD and you need a little guidance, Feels has you covered with real human support. They'll answer all of your questions on their free CBD hotline. Join the Feels community now and get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels is helping me feel better every day and it can help you too become a member today by going to feels.com mm and you'll get 50 percent off your first order with free shipping that's f-e-a-l-s dot com slash mm to become a member and get 50 percent automatically taken off your first order with free shipping start feeling better go to feels.com slash MM. Now more than ever, I realize how important it is to try to eat healthy. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I need a summer vacation from cooking. When the heat rises, I'm looking for ways to do less. That's why lately, I've been skipping out on meal prep and keeping things easy with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest makes it easy to keep my house fully stocked with clean food built on whole fruits and vegetables. They deliver delicious clean food right to my door that just takes a few minutes to prepare. Right now, Daily Harvest is helping me beat the heat with their refreshing smoothies and delicious scoops, their new plant-based ice cream. Daily Harvest scoops are gluten-free, dairy-free, free from additives, preservatives, and fillers, because like everything else Daily Harvest, they're made with whole 
nourishing organic ingredients like black sesame, coconut cream, and dragon fruit. And they have four amazing flavors. Strawberry and rich ripple berry compote, mint with dark melty cacao chips, chocolate with ooey gooey midnight fudge, and my favorite, vanilla with salted swirled black sesame. With Daily Harvest, I never have to question if the food I'm eating is good for me. And I don't have to overthink my meals for the week. They have delicious options for any time of day. Smoothies, soups, scoops, harvest bowls, flatbreads, and more. Plus, Daily Harvest works directly with farms and freezes organic fruits and vegetables at peak ripeness to lock in the nutrients and taste. So they never have to use preservatives, added sugar, or artificial ingredients. And Daily Harvest isn't just good for you, it's good for the planet. Daily Harvest is committed to minimizing their environmental impact. They've been in the process of transitioning to 100% compostable, recyclable packaging and are over 50% of the way there already. So Daily Harvest isn't just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code MINUTE to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code MINUTE for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Keep it simple this summer with Daily Harvest. Visit dailyharvest.com and use the promo code MINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, a murder case that seemed open and shut until the complicated truth emerged. Rain pounded on Sally Challen's car as she made her way to her husband Richard's home in Claygate, Surrey, a suburban village nestled 13 miles from central London. By that Saturday in August 2010, the couple of three decades had lived apart for close to a year, a trial separation. Now they were in the process of reconciling. They planned to sell their family estate and vacation in Australia before settling into a new home. That morning, they intended to clear the house so they could officially put it on the market. Richard was hungry, though, for breakfast, so before they got started, he asked Sally to head to the store to pick up bacon and eggs. Worry accompanied Sally as she headed to the store, filled her grocery basket, checked out, and headed back. Her husband must have asked her to leave for a reason, she thought, perhaps to talk to Susan, a woman Sally recently learned he had met through the website Dinner Dates. Given her ongoing suspicions about Richard's infidelities, Sally had googled Susan's name and dinner dates the night before. While it's not a dating site, the social networking company aims to connect like-minded people in exciting ways. That didn't sit well with the 56-year-old woman, given what she knew and believed about 61-year-old Richard. When Sally returned from the store, a scan of his phone confirmed her concerns. He had taken a call from Susan. When she confronted Richard about the call and plans he may have made with her, he reportedly replied, don't question me. Sally did something else instead. Something so brutal, it's difficult to fathom. After serving steaming plates of bacon and eggs, she retrieved a hammer and hit her husband some 20 plus times. Then she stuffed a towel in his mouth wrapped him up in curtains, and placed a note on his body that read, 
I love you, Sally. Then she washed the dishes and drove back to the home she'd been living in with one of their two sons, David. The following morning, she gave David a ride to work, then headed to Beachy Head, a 500-foot cliff known equally for its breathtaking views and its unfortunate use in suicides. She parked on the roadside and called her cousin, to whom she revealed Richard's death and that she was going to jump. Once alerted, police raced to the scene, arriving to find Sally at the cliff's edge. It took authorities hours to talk her away from the ridge. As they did so, she confessed to killing her longtime husband. Once police escorted Sally to safety, they arrested her on suspicion of murder. By then, neighbors had discovered Richard's lifeless body. At the station, police continued to interview Sally. She stood by what she had admitted, saying she didn't know why she had done it. Afterward, she asked if she could change her confession. When the team returned to the investigation room, she said, I just want to say that on Saturday, when I went over there, I took the hammer with me from my house. I wasn't thinking, I'm going to go there and I'm going to kill Richard. I was thinking, I'm going to go there and there's a possibility, depending on what pans out. From the outside, it seemed like a fairly open and shut case, and it was treated accordingly for some time. Sally Challen had admitted her guilt after all, confessing more than once. And she said she had brought the hammer to the home, a potential sign of premeditation. Not until years later would the case be revealed as a lot more complicated. Ten months after Sally's arrest, the trial began. The typically stylish woman appeared to be a mess. Her hair was in disarray, her fingers were yellowed from smoking, and she had lost a front tooth. She stood quietly, barely uttering a word. Prosecutors made the case that Sally had been an obsessed, possessive, and jealous wife who couldn't tolerate her husband having female friends. She counted his Viagra, they said, hacked his messages, and read his emails. On the day she killed him, they asserted, she snapped after learning that Richard had made plans to go boating with Susan the next day, only canceling because of the weather. On the stand, Susan said she had phoned him that morning to suggest Sunday lunch instead, and she described their relationship as platonic. While she found him to be a lovely man with a good sense of humor, they were nothing more than friends. Whenever Sally was asked why she killed Richard, she continued to say she just didn't know, and she added that she just didn't think he wanted to be with her. The trial took just seven days, and Sally Challen was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. The judge said during sentencing, You are somebody who killed the only man you have known and loved, and you will have to live with knowing what you did. While behind bars, Sally reached out to Harriet Wilstrich, a solicitor and director of the Center for Women's Justice, an organization that challenges discrimination in the justice system related to male violence against girls and women. Wilstrich met with Sally and told makers of the documentary, The Case of Sally Challen, about her first impression. Sally was very cut off, she said, 
she had a cold handshake and seemed withdrawn and distanced. While Wilstrich didn't feel hopeful about the situation, she told Sally she would look into the case. She then spent months researching to get the full account of what happened, feeling increasingly confident that there was an underlying story that needed telling. Here's what she learned. Sally was 16 when she met 22-year-old Richard. They were very happy together at first, but over time, Richard's charm proved to be superficial and he became emotionally abusive. He frequently bullied and belittled her, telling her what she should wear, who she could spend time with, and what she was and wasn't allowed to do. He forbade her to socialize without him, for example, and a home video shows Sally holding one of her small sons on her lap. Off camera, Richard's condescending voice sounds, I see you want to wear red today. While all of this was happening in the relationship, Richard engaged in serial affairs and flaunted his money. Yet when the children were in school and Sally got a part-time job for the police federation, he demanded she pay for everything in the household. Though Richard was aware of Sally's pain and insecurities, he continually made bold and hurtful choices and treated her very differently around others than behind closed doors. At one point, he hired two women to pose naked and drape their bodies around him for a Christmas card he sent to family and friends. Another time, Sally discovered that he was routinely visiting a brothel, which housed women who were victims of sex trafficking. Anytime she challenged Richard, he made her feel as though she was wrong or imagining things, which is now defined as gaslighting. One of the darkest abuse episodes took place in 1988, while the family was visiting a longtime friend of Richard's in California. The friend hugged Sally and kissed her cheek, the way he greeted most any friend. Richard grew so angry and jealous at the sight of that, Sally said in a letter she wrote to the courts, that he anally raped her for the first, but not the last time. Her sons didn't know the details of what happened that day, but they recall the fighting and that something, quote, horrific occurred and they were aware of how horrible their father treated her in general. Later in their marriage, Richard refused to have sex with Sally, while he continued to solicit sex at brothels and engage in affairs. When she tried to appear sexier, donning lingerie and tall boots to attract him, he snubbed her. When Sally finally managed to leave Richard and started divorce proceedings, she was so emotionally dependent on him that she signed a postnuptial agreement he provided that denied her of financial entitlements and forbade her from talking to strangers while socializing or interrupting him ever. When her best friend Sarah asked her why she would sign such a thing, Sally said she was afraid she would lose him. These excerpts from written exchanges between Sally and Richard illustrate the emotional dependency, gaslighting, and control he held over her. From Sally, Richard, I miss you, and I really mean that. I thought we would grow old together. I want to be with you. I am sorry I left. You are my life, and I love you. From Richard. Sally, it has been a very difficult time for me since you left. The decision you made without discussing it with me after 30 years. I think I deserved more. You have alienated me from James and David. After everything that has been said to me by you, our relationships will never be the same. 
you, James, and David have enjoyed a good lifestyle and have shared some super holidays together. I have paid for the boys' education throughout their lives, and we all shared a super home together. Now you want to destroy me by taking half my money and my business and livelihood away from me. Then he listed those conditions. I will consider your return only on these terms, that when we go out together, it means that, together, this constant talking to strangers is rude and inconsiderate. You are to give up smoking and to give up constant interruptions when I'm speaking. You will continue and complete the divorce without accepting half of the family estate. Harriet Wilstrich and her team also noticed signs of mental illness in Sally. So they asked a forensic psychiatrist to examine her. The psychiatrist determined that Sally had borderline personality disorder and a severe mood disorder, most likely bipolar affective disorder, which were both untreated and were exacerbated by years of emotional abuse. Given all of these findings, Wilstrich was convinced that mental illness and coercive control, which wasn't even a legal term in the UK at the time of Sally's conviction, were to blame for her violent behaviors. Evan Stark developed the term coercive control to help understand domestic abuse as a pattern of behavior which seeks to take away the victim's liberty or freedom, to strip away their sense of self and a violation of human rights. Prior to killing Richard, Sally had never shown violent tendencies. And to this day, she doesn't recall making a conscious decision to hurt him. In a letter she wrote, something flipped inside my head. That was when I picked up the hammer and hit him on the head repeatedly. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I had the hammer in my bag. I couldn't stop hitting him. I think I took him by surprise. Sally has said many times that she regrets ending his life and that she still really misses him. In 2017, Justice for Women submitted new grounds of appeal to the Criminal Appeal Court. The submission highlighted an expert report illustrating how coercive control provides a better framework for understanding Sally's actions, as well as the new psychiatric evidence. Permission to appeal was refused by a judge who only read part of the file, but the legal team didn't give up. They submitted a new oral application for appeal before three court of appeal judges, and Sally was granted leave to appeal. In February 2019, the Court of Appeal heard the new evidence. Sally's conviction was overturned, and a retrial was ordered. The retrial never happened, though, because a few months later, prosecutors accepted Sally's plea to manslaughter, and she was sentenced to nine years and four months in prison. Because of the time she had already served, Sally Challen walked free. Just before the appeal hearing, Sally's son David appeared on the TV show Good Morning Britain to talk about the case. During the interview, the host asked him what he would say to people who thought that if his mom went free, it would give permission to others to kill their abusers. David replied, I would say, I hear you, but that's ridiculous. You're looking at the events that led to father's death. Not a justification, but an understanding. No one in Sally's family believes that what she did was right or unworthy of punishment, 
but they all believe she has been punished enough and was a victim herself for many years. A woman pushed to kill not out of hate, but out of mental instability made far worse by emotional and sexual trauma and a lack of care. No one deserves to be killed, David said. It's that her abuse needs to be acknowledged. David has also said that he felt sorry for his father, who seemed unaware of his abusiveness and the toxic situation he had created. When Harriet heard the news that Sally's conviction had been quashed, tears filled her eyes. Afterward, at a press conference, Sally said, I would like to thank from the bottom of my heart, Harriet and Claire, and all of those around me who have worked tirelessly to get me where I am today. It's been a long road. I would also like to thank my children. And there, her voice broke up. James and David, without whom I would not be the person I am now. They have served my sentence with me. Many other women who are victims of abuse, as I was, are in prison today. They have suffered abuse and other miscarriages of justice and should be serving sentences for manslaughter, not murder. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.